How is the Biden administration managing the crisis at the southern border? What more can or should be done? Is there a role for the business community in addressing this worsening situation? I'm Edward Siegel, a leadership strategy senior contributor for Forbes.com and author of the best-selling and award-winning book, Crisis Ahead, 101 Ways to Prepare for and Bounce Back from Disasters, Scandals, and Other Emergencies. My guest today is Jay Johnson, former Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, will share his insights and observations about the continuing immigration crisis. Thanks for joining me today, Mr. Secretary, on the Crisis Ahead podcast. I'm glad you could join us. Thank you. Look forward to our discussion. In your view, how has the Biden administration been in responding to the continuing and apparently worsening crisis uh, at the border? I believe that they are doing all they can. I believe that the latest moves on border security will result in lower numbers of those crossing our southern border illegally. Um, Years ago, when I was in office, and we had a spike in May 2014, a Catholic priest told me, you cannot padlock a burning building. You have to give people a lawful and safe pathway out, one way or another. Last fall, um, the Biden administration created a program for Venezuelans to enable them to apply for asylum in our country in place or in some place other than in the country once they were here. And that was met with some success. The numbers of Venezuelans crossing the southern border illegally dropped pretty quickly and significantly. And now they've basically expanded upon the same principle for a number of countries. And the numbers for January were lower than they were from December though it would be too early to declare victory because a new policy change sometimes will take as long as a month or two to have effects on our southern border. It's also the case that January is typically a slow month for migration headed north into the United States. So um, this is a very difficult problem. It's bigger now than it was when I was in office. And It does take a whole-of-government effort to address it, and it takes multiple administrations and a sustained effort over a period of time to address as well. We can make changes in enforcement policy on our southern border, which will have an immediate impact, but very often, and I'd learned this myself when I was in office, that impact will be short-term in nature. So long as the underlying conditions in Cuba, Haiti, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras persist, people will still continue to head north to the United States for a better life. So a lot of people don't want to hear this. They want quick and easy fixes, but you've got to address the underlying systemic push factors. According to the New York Times, the Biden administration is considering reviving the practice of detaining migrant families who cross the border illegally. This, of course, is the same policy the president shut down over the past two years. 
because he said he wanted a more humane immigration system. Do you think it'd be a good idea to revive this policy? In 2014, when we were wrestling with the spike we had then, I was surprised to learn that among our immigration detention shelters, facilities, we had a very small number equipped for families. I don't remember the exact numbers, but if we had 33,000 beds for detention, only like 100 or 200 were equipped for family units. And given the changing demographic of those venturing north, we decided to expand upon those units, expand upon the capability to detain families where we thought there was a risk of flight. Uh, that was controversial. We ran up against a litigation in California called Flores. The outgrowth of that was that um, we developed the practice of detaining families, but for no longer than 20 days after they were processed, after we uh, knew that there was no real risk of flight. And that practice persisted for a number of years. The Biden administration uh, discontinued it. Uh, and I see from, I, I read the same article you read um, that looks as though they might be considering restoring the practice. I believe personally that it is one of the many tools that you need to have when you are faced with a with a spike in the in the numbers, so long as it is a practice that is engaged in um, consistent with our values and our humanitarian priorities. You just mentioned the tools. Are there tools that we have available that uh, we're not using, but you think we should? Well, I'll put it this way. We have to, as I said earlier, address the underlying causes. Some of the countries I mentioned earlier, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Cuba, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, among the most violent places on earth. Impoverished, they suffer from drought, their economies are poor, the corruption, levels of corruption in those host governments is terrible. And families, are making the basic decision to leave and come to the United States. And they know that they may only get a couple of years here in the United States while their asylum claim is pending, but they've made the basic choice that I'm better off here for a couple of years than I am staying at home. So I know President Biden believes this because when he was vice president and I was secretary of Homeland Security, you've got to address the problem at the source. There's no level of defense you can put up on our southern border that can overcome the push factors in those countries, which is why they keep coming. And so through foreign assistance, through very targeted, calibrated foreign assistance, I believe we should and we can address the levels of poverty and corruption and violence in those countries. 
What lessons do you think we've learned over the years uh, about what works uh, or what doesn't uh, in addressing the crisis at the border? Well, I'll tell you what I learned, the hard lessons I learned managing this problem for three years. We can do things on our southern border to enhance enforcement. We can do things to enhance deterrence. We can send messages about our border security. When we enhance enforcement or we're perceived as dialing back on enforcement, that perception has an immediate impact on the numbers. Illegal immigration is a very information-sensitive phenomenon, and I've said that a number of times. It reacts sharply to news about changes in our enforcement policy here in the United States. So with the latest changes that were announced in January, we may well, we are likely to see a sharp downturn in, in the numbers over the next several months. But, and here's the big but, those changes will have a short-term effect only. So long as the underlying conditions in these countries persist, the numbers always revert back to their longer-term trend lines. So that's the lesson I learned in 2014, 2015, 2016 in dealing with this. We did a number of things in May, April, June of 2014 to enhance our enforcement policy, the numbers went down, they stayed low for over a year, uh, but then they started to revert back to their longer term trend lines because of the underlying conditions in these countries, these source countries. So if you were still the Secretary of Homeland Security, what would you be doing today? Well, thank goodness I'm not. Uh, I'm not sure I'd ever want that job back. I was very proud to do it. Uh, I, I was the highlight of my professional life, but no, I'd never want to be secretary of DHS again. Um, the, the, the circumstances now are different. Um, the, the smugglers are much better at moving larger numbers of people north. Their capabilities are much bigger. You see these large caravans of people heading north. On the, on the other hand, our resources are much more expansive. We do have the ability now to process uh, much larger numbers of people. Um, if I were still in office, uh, I would probably do what I did while I was in office, which is continually um, articulate the enforcement message. Do not come here. There's a right way to come here. There's a wrong way to come here. You come here the wrong way, we will send you back consistent with our values. That's what I said over and over again when I was in office. I think it's important to continue to repeat that message over and over again in Washington and elsewhere and beyond. People don't begin to hear you until you've said something 38 times. And I was not shy about doing that. Uh, but I think that the people at DHS now, the DHS leadership, are doing the best they can to wrestle with a very, very difficult problem. You mentioned earlier the importance of making this a whole of government effort. And do you think that all the federal agencies are pulling together in the right direction or anything else they should be doing in a coordinated basis to help stem the tide of immigrants? Well, <clears throat> HHS has a large role when it comes to unaccompanied minors. Under the law, if DHS, the Border Patrol, apprehends an unaccompanied child on the southern border, 
uh, they have to turn them over to Health and Human Services within a specific period of time. HHS then has the responsibility to place that child someplace in the U.S. Uh, in the best interest of the child. That, frankly, that is not part of HHS's core mission. Um, and so uh, we've struggled in the interagency over the last number of years um, getting a full embrace of this issue, frankly. And there's a role for justice, there's a role for HHS during um, uh, spikes, uh, there's a role for FEMA, which is part of DHS, and there's a role for Congress, frankly. And this issue, as you know well, is highly politicized. It's a red meat issue on the right. And of course, there are the activists on the left, which make it extremely difficult in Congress to come together on any consensus solution to this problem. So the executive branch gets very little, if any, help from the legislative branch on this issue. Too many in Congress are content to stand in their extreme corners and yell at the other side and call them evil and so forth, and nothing gets done. We need comprehensive immigration reform uh, to solve these problems. These problems, the problem of our southern border is a solvable problem. It, we, there are solutions that are obtainable. Unfortunately, in the current environment, they are politically unobtainable. What impact is this crisis having on the business community? And do you think there's a role for business leaders to help ad address this crisis? I absolutely think there's a role for business leaders. If managed and harnessed in a deliberate, organized way, um, migrant workers on a seasonal basis, on a regional basis, can support our economy. I've heard that over and over again from the business community. Um, the business community can and should, in my judgment, be more vocal to say there are ways to harness these numbers uh, that will contribute to our economy, to fill jobs where it's difficult to find people already here in the U.S. to fill them. Um, and that is something that we need to hear more of, in my view. Put aside all of the hysteria and, frankly, a lot of the racism uh, in the rhetoric about the southern border. Um, there are legitimate uh, business needs that can be met if migration on our southern border is harnessed and managed in the proper way. So do you think a CEO should call DHS and say, you know, we're here to help, let us know what we should do, or should they wait to be contacted by the government first? I think that CEOs should be heard in Congress. Uh, I think that um, I would recommend to business leaders that their voices be heard in Congress among their elected officials. How do you measure success in addressing a crisis like this? How do we know that we've won or we're making progress? When the numbers go down significantly, um, people ask me all the time, what is a secure border? Uh, I mean, I can't give you a magic number there. But uh, for a lot of years, 
the numbers were pretty low. Um, before NAFTA, when the Mexican economy was poor, um, we saw lots of Mexicans crossing our border. I think it was maybe 20 years ago, something like 1.6 million apprehensions on our southern border. Those numbers through successive administrations went down significantly in part because of added border security, but also in part because of the improved economy in Mexico. So here again, are those push factors, the push factors make the difference. If the economy in the source country improves, levels of illegal migration from that source country go down. So just to give you a relative number, in FY15, my second year in office, there were 315,000 apprehensions on our southern border. Second lowest number since I think 1972. Somebody may fact check me on that, but I believe that's the case. In part because of increased border security and in part because uh, the economy in Mexico improved. The demographic, however, changed. And so now we're seeing more and more migrants from Central America, from Cuba, from Haiti, from Venezuela and Nicaragua. And so if we can get the number down to a manageable number where the border patrol can keep up with the processing, ICE can keep up with the processing, we, we can clear out the backlogs in our immigration courts in the consideration of deportation, in the consideration of asylum claims, and we can get to a number that can be absorbed in the Southwest along the border in these border communities, then we're in a much better place than we are now. Frankly, it is unfair to expect communities all along the southern border in Texas and Arizona to absorb numbers of, of this magnitude. Uh, my wife volunteers on the southern border, and she literally goes down uh, with Catholic charities to clothe and, clothe and feed migrants. And when you're dealing with numbers of this size, it's difficult for those communities to absorb them. Um, so uh, yet another reason why these numbers should be more manageable. Well, to help ease the crisis in those communities, should the federal government or even the business community be making a make a special effort to help uh, alleviate what they're going through? I think that at the national level, we should be more organized and strategic in resettling migrants in the interior of this country. DHS um, does not have the authority and the money to transport people to the interior of the country once they're released by ICE. But there ought to be some sort of nationally coordinated effort, much like there was when we took in a lot of refugees from Iraq and Syria in 2015, 2016. In the absence of that, it's left to Governor DeSantis and Governor Abbott to make those choices by sending busloads of people to uh, Port Authority bus terminal here in New York City or Mass Ave in Washington or even Martha's Vineyard. So there needs to be a nationally coordinated effort at trying to absorb these numbers in a more organized, strategic way. Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned the political challenges that uh, the new uh, Republican leadership in the House of Representatives will pose to addressing the problem. 
Do you see similar political challenges in the countries where most of the immigrants are coming from? Are they cooperating with us? Or are they making things harder? Um, well, some of these countries, we have almost no diplomatic relationship, like Cuba or Venezuela. So they're not helping. You need the cooperation of the host government to accept the repatriation, the return of migrants that we deport. They have to agree to take them back. That's very often a challenge. Even in countries with which we do have a relationship, like Guatemala, like Honduras, migrants who settle in the United States help to support their economies by sending money back home to their families. And so they have sort of a conflict of interest. On the one hand, they want their nationals back. On the other hand, when they come to the US, they work and they're able to send money back home. So there's a bit of a dilemma for these countries that are that are impoverished because they they need help with their own economies. They will agree to take migrants back. I have literally gone to Honduras, Guatemala, stood on the tarmac of the airport to greet migrants back uh, who are stepping off the airplanes that ICE sends to those countries just to highlight publicly that we are in fact sending people back. I have done press conferences where I have stood next to the president of the country saying to the public there, please don't come to my country, which is awkward. So these countries want their, they want their youth back. On the other hand, uh, migration up here supports their economy. You just mentioned the photographs you had taken uh, yourself with uh, various leaders of other countries where the immigrants are coming from. Uh, visuals are important in helping to tell the story in a crisis, of course. Uh, President Biden attracted a lot of attention a few weeks ago when he went to the border and some criticized that he had not gone soon enough and others said he was doing the right thing. Going forward, what are the visuals that you think are, would be most important in helping to convey what's happening at the borders and the importance of doing something about this crisis? Images are important. Pictures say a million words. When I went to the southern border, and I probably did at least a dozen times in three years, I would meet with the Border Patrol, I would meet with ICE, I'd want people to see that I was meeting with the Border Patrol, that I was walking the southern border with them, understanding the nature of their challenges, but I also spent time with the kids, with the migrants. I'd, I'd go to, the, I'd go to the, the, the holding facilities and I'd literally go into uh, a room where a lot of these kids were, were staying. And I, through a translator, I had asked them, you know, how was your journey? Why did you come here? And I'd want people to see that I took the time to understand their plight. And my approach, frankly, this problem, look, I, I, let me preface it by saying this. These problems always look simpler when you're on the outside. Um, you can put some distance between the problem and, and yourself when you leave the job. What I tried to do was send a strong enforcement message, but at the same time, demonstrate that 
policymakers in Washington, like myself, also had a heart. I would visit with these kids. I'd visit with their mothers um, in these facilities. I would react on a personal level as a, as a father. I'd want to scoop all these kids up and take them home with me, but I knew I couldn't. And so it's important for our leaders in Washington to show their compassionate side through visuals, but to also show we got a job to do. We have to enforce border security. We're a sovereign nation with, with borders. Americans have a right to expect that we can secure our border and we know who's entering the country and we can secure our perimeter. So it's a bit of a conflict there, but I believe you have to manage both both aspects of it and visuals are important. I'm afraid we're almost out of time, Mr. Secretary. Uh, before we end though, is there one last message or important takeaway you'd like to share with our viewers and listeners today? Yes. So this issue is not one extreme or another. Two things can be true at the same time. I believe most Americans, consistent with our values, consistent with our values as a nation of immigrants, believe that we should treat migrants desperate for a better life in a fair and humane and compassionate way. We're Americans. This is who we are. On the other hand, <clears throat> Americans also want a secure border. They want to know that we've got control of our perimeter, that we're, we're, we're enforcing border security in a fair, humane way. If you go to border communities in Texas, they'll tell you the same thing. Uh, you go to Laredo, Texas, which is 85% Mexican-American. Um, they believe in being compassionate. They believe in being fair, but they also want a secure border. That has to be our policy. It may seem to be in conflict that may seem to be an internal conflict, but it's not. Well, thanks again for joining us today, Mr. Secretary. I appreciate your advice and insights on this uh, continuing crisis. That's it for this edition of the Crisis Ahead podcast. My guest today was Jay Johnson, former Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. Be sure to come back next week for more advice and insights on preparing for managing and recovering from a crisis, or subscribe to Crisis Ahead wherever you get podcasts. Remember, it's not a matter of if a crisis will hit your organization or company, it's when. And the sooner you are prepared for it, the better. Produced by HeartCast Media.